From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of um, isolation for patients who aren't able to accept visitors um, given the COVID epidemic. Um, but it's been incredibly heartening to see how uh, people have come together to, to try to meet this challenge. That's Dhruv Kular on his experience as a hospitalist in the heart of the U.S. COVID crisis. Our special series continues this week with a first-person account from New York City, the epicenter of the pandemic. But first, a word from our sponsor. Is physician profitability a problem in your hospital-owned practice? Then let NThrive Analytics help drill into your physician data and get a clearer picture. At one of the nation's largest multi-institutional healthcare delivery systems, with 92 hospitals and 107 continuing care locations, NThrive Analytics aggregated data from 62 disparate billing systems into one, providing unprecedented visibility to monitor performance and implement improvement plans. Bottom line, the organization realized a 15% reduction in loss per physician, 30% improvement in productivity, and 20% improvement in schedule density. Visit nthrive.com to learn how your organization can leverage analytics and achieve similar results. New York City appears to have passed its COVID-19 peak, but the toll the virus has taken on the area has been staggering. Confirmed cases have climbed to nearly 140,000 since March 1st, and more than 10,000 have died, making one of the world's most popular cities almost unrecognizable as it's battled to flatten the curve. This week's guest, Dr. Dhruv Kular, has been right in the thick of the battle as a practicing MD at Weill Cornell, New York Presbyterian. A keynote speaker at MGMA 20, the operations conference online, Dhruv is also an assistant professor and a regular contributor to such publications as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and The Atlantic, among others. This interview was recorded the afternoon of Wednesday, April 15th. Dhruv, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, you've recently written a, a couple of New Yorker articles. These are based on your experiences on the front line of the COVID-19 crisis. The first one that I ran across, it's titled Adrenaline, Duty, and Fear Inside a New York Hospital Taking on the Coronavirus. Um, there's a line that, that really touched me early in that piece, quote, inside the hospital pulses with an energy I've never experienced before. Um, I want you to, if you can, just go into that a little bit. Tell anyone who's, who's not involved in that type of situation, what is it like for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I was trying to get across in this piece is just how different it is outside the hospital versus inside the hospital right now. And so, you know, New York is America's biggest city. It's America's densest city. You can't walk half a block without hearing a car horn or, uh, you know, folks all over the place. And now it's very different. Now the streets are quiet. Now um, you can, you know, walk all over the city and hardly run into anyone. And so that's the situation kind of outside the hospital. But inside the hospital, it's very different. 
You know, it's a place where uh, the activity is higher than I've ever seen it. We're seeing more patients. Um, there's more doctors and nurses and PAs in there. Um, and so there's this real kind of energy that pulses through the hospital. Um, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of um, isolation for patients who aren't able to accept visitors um, given the COVID epidemic. Um, but it's been incredibly heartening to see how uh, people have come together to, to try to meet this challenge. Yeah, and I was curious about this because you write about it very beautifully. You also write about it in a very natural way about what is transpiring in front of you. And I'm just curious about that. How are you able, because I'm assuming that at times you're, you're wearing the full PPE uh, equipment there. So yeah. how are you able to take down these great observations and be able to put them down on paper when you're in the middle of it? Yeah, you know, most of our day now is is kind of full head to toe PPE. We're going uh, on the medical floors. We're in the ICUs. Um, you know, and so we uh, we're fortunate at my hospital that we do have the PPE that we need to keep clinicians safe. Um, and there's just so much going on. Like I said, there's been so much activity trying to build the capacity of our hospital, trying to expand our ICUs to make sure that we're able to care for patients in the best way possible when they come in. Uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of think of myself as having a little bit of a dual role in, in the sense that I'm uh, treating patients, I'm kind of on the front lines, but I also think it's important to help people understand what's going on. How, how are we responding to the epidemic in New York, uh, in part because um, you know other cities and other states will experience this in the future. And I think if I can put down to paper um, some of my thoughts, some of my reflections, some of the initiatives that we've put forward, uh, that might be helpful for others in the future. So when I come home at the end of the night, uh, whatever time that ends up being, I try to at least jot down uh, a few recollections from the day and then uh, and then turn that into a piece at some point when I have a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. And you're a, a hospitalist in New York. Uh, That's right. Right. And New York is has truly become the epicenter of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, it's you're living it. Uh, your patients are living it. And us around the rest of the world, we're we're observing it and and just pulling for everybody there in New York that you can save as many people as you can, care for as many people as you can, and, and keep yourselves safe as well. But just walk us through it then. Give us an idea of what that day-to-day -day has been like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly busy, as you can imagine. You know, my hospital uh, is kind of becoming an epicenter of treatment within uh, the epicenter of disease. We're accepting a lot of patients from around the city. Um, who, uh, who are critically ill uh, from hospitals that don't necessarily have as much of ICU capacity as we do. We're trying to um, you know, transfer patients without uh, COVID to, to other facilities so we can make room to treat coronavirus patients. And so you know, the first thing I would say is that it's been incredibly busy. Um, and in some sense, you know, my day is, is uh, in some ways very similar to what it has been in the past in some ways quite different. So, you know, we get in early, um, you know, 6.30, 7, something like that. We pre-round on our patients. Uh, I meet up with um, my, my team on the medical floors and, and the team is really changing and evolving every day. So that part is actually quite different. 
Um, now when I'm seeing patients, I'm also training other doctors. These might be outpatient physicians. They might be endocrinologists or gastroenterologists who have volunteered to help out on the wards and, and kind of getting more accustomed to inpatient medicine. And so I'm, I'm simultaneously training those physicians. Um, there are residents who are kind of uh, pathology residents or radiology residents who are now, um, you know, operating as interns and residents on the medical floors. Uh, I'm working with PAs. And so we have kind of a big and evolving team. Everyone's just trying to help out in the way that they can. And then the last thing I would say is that we've been trying to use telemedicine in really interesting and new ways. And I think that's allowed us to see more patients, um, you know, per, per unit time. Uh, and it's also allowed us to, to stay safe and keep, keep um, the clinicians uh, safe in any way that we can. And so a lot of patients, we're trying to give out iPads to them if we have them um, uh, for them. Our, our hospital's been fortunate to receive kind of donations of, of iPads and tablets. And so we can kind of FaceTime patients from outside the room. So we minimize the amount of time we're inside. Uh, other patients were just calling outside the room and then we'll go inside to do the exam and then pop back out. So something that could have taken you know, 10 or 15 minutes in the room when we're um, trying to minimize that exposure. Now we're in and out in a minute or two just to do the exam. Um, and so, you know, like I said, in some ways it's very similar to, you know, we're still getting an early, we pre-round, we round. I, um, but, but at the end of the day, um, and there's also been a lot of shifts. Um, and then I guess the last thing I want to add is that um, it's been very different um, interacting with patients' families. And that's been a really important part of things. So in the past, we would walk into rooms and there might be, you know, a son or a daughter or mother, father, grandparent. They might all be in there um, talking, keeping the patient company. Now, um, you know, there are no visitors in the hospital and it can create a real sense of isolation for patients. And so we try to uh, fill in the gaps. Um, medical students have volunteered to kind of call patients and just check in on them over the course of the day. I make sure that I, I call families to update them on what we're doing. Um, and so it's a, you know, it's a very unique time. I've never experienced anything like this in, in my medical career before. Mm -hmm. One of the things you write about that, that caught my attention was a virtual assistant. Uh, walk us through that. Are you actually interacting with one of your colleagues and they're kind of walking around with you, but through your iPad or some other device? Yeah, so this is a, another thing that we're, we're piloting and it's kind of evolving as well, um, but it's a, it's a virtual physician or a, vir a virtual attending that is um, on with me. And the idea is that this, this virtual physician is not in the hospital themselves. They may be, you know, some of them are actually self-quarantining or uh, have, have been ill um, and, and so are, but, but are not so ill that they can't work. And so they, um, they, they still contribute in any way they can. So this is someone that, that is in a different location. Maybe they're at home. Uh, they're able to review the patient's chart. Uh, and I call them in the morning. I put them on speakerphone. I put them in my pocket uh, under all my PPE. Uh, and I introduce them to the patient. Um, and I tell them that they're going to be helping out. And they're able to hear our conversation. Uh, they're able to update me on results, lab values, uh, the results of a COVID test, for instance, in real time. So I don't have to go back and forth to the computer. Uh, and while I'm in the room or when I step out, when I'm walking from one patient's room to another patient's room, they can put in orders for me. And so uh, by the time I'm, I'm done rounding, uh, a lot of the note might have been written. A lot of the orders might be in. They may have even called a family member. They may have called a, a consult for me. Um, and so it's been a really um, yeah, effective uh, new program for us. 
and it's allowed us to see each doctor to see more patients than we otherwise could have. Do you think that that some of these innovations that you're creating on the fly here in this crisis situation can be adopted uh, beyond just this crisis, that beyond this, we can have expanded telemedicine, we can have expanded virtual physicians if that's needed? What What's sort of the uh, scope of what is possible out there? You know, I hope so. Um, you know, one, the COVID epidemic has been such a devastating um, epidemic for so many people. Um, but, but, but it's possible that there will be really important changes in healthcare delivery that come out of it. And I think telemedicine is a prime example. I think doctors are going to become much more comfortable with telemedicine. Patients will be more comfortable with it. We're going to start to realize that a lot of the back and forth of bringing patients into the office um, for, for visits um, may not have been necessary. A lot of the things that we do can be done virtually. And so, you know, I think there's certainly a spike in telemedicine right now. I think people are using a lot of these technologies in new and novel ways. Um, but I do think it's going to have a lasting impact. So I think a year, two years from now, we're in a very different world in terms of how we deliver uh, medical care to people. Mm-hmm. One of the phrases you've used uh, since this has happened is a medical militia. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just think that's a, a really powerful phrase. What do those fellow healthcare workers mean to you now, having gone through all of these experiences together that y'all are going through on a daily basis? You know, it's been incredible. It's it's really just been um, so heartening to see the way that everyone has come together to fight this disease. Um, you know, when, when I talk about a medical militia, I mean, um, you know, outpatient physicians that are volunteering to spend time on the inpatient side. I mean, retired physicians who uh, maybe haven't worked clinically for a few years, have volunteered to come back into the hospital to help us in any way that we can. We've seen an incredible outpouring of support from around the country. We have volunteers from Utah, California. I came across a doctor that was from France that um, that is volunteering in, in one of our hospitals. Um, and so uh, it's just been this situation in which everyone has kind of swallowed their ego. Everyone is trying to help out in whatever way that they can. Um, and we've, uh, because of that, we've been able to, to meet and rise to the occasion um, and, and have been able to deliver care to, to people um, that, I'm, that I'm really proud of. Mm-hmm. In both of your articles, and you mentioned this earlier, you really juxtapose the chaos that's going on inside the hospital with the calm and quiet outside of it. And you already mentioned that anybody who's been to New York, it is not a, it's not mm-hmm. a naturally a quiet place. It really crackles with a unique energy there. And I'm just wondering when you're leaving that building each evening, is it a palpable thing to you that this isn't the New York that I know and love? It is, um, it is something that really strikes you every time you walk outside. I mean, uh, like I said, the hospital is still an energetic busy place, perhaps even more so uh, than it was in the past. And then you walk outside and you walk a couple streets away from it and it's quiet. Walk down the street, um, every storefront is closed. Um, There's one or two people maybe on on the sidewalk as you walk by. Um, Times Square is empty. Um, And so 
it's like nothing I've experienced before. Um, you know, one thing that I will say is that uh, every evening at 7 p.m., you, uh, you hear this roar across the city. And it's people who are coming to their windows or coming to their balconies, um, you know, yelling, cheering, uh, ringing bells uh, in support of the healthcare workers around the city. And so that's the one time uh, all day that you really hear um, people coming out and, and New York coming together. And it's really a, a beautiful thing. It, it really is. I've seen some videos of that. Um, I wanted to ask you about your second article. It's titled... A Disembodied Voice, The Loneliness and Solidarity of Treating the Coronavirus in New York. I'm just curious to you, what is that disembodied voice? You know, um, like I said, we've, we've had to institute some policies in which we're really trying to minimize the amount of time exposure uh, to coronavirus in people's rooms. Um, and so when I talk about the disembodied voice, a lot of that is uh, us calling patients to check in on them as opposed to going in as often as we used to. Um, it is uh, family members calling uh, patients to, to check in on them as opposed to being there in person. And so it's this idea that patients are often in a place where they're just hearing uh, voices. They're talking to people, but they're not seeing people. Uh, they're not able to see their smiles. They're not able to hold their hands. It's a very um, I think aversive experience for a lot of a lot of patients and a lot of doctors struggle with it too. Seeing patients um, having to go through things alone, a lot of doctors are away from their own families. They're um, you know sleeping in a different part of the, the 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 their homes or they're actually physically staying in a hotel. Um, and so uh, it's trying to get at this idea that we are physically distanced from it, one another. And you know, like I mentioned before, we're trying to do things to get around this. And so we're trying to FaceTime with patients. We're trying to use video um, to, as opposed to just calls to, to, to at least give them a richer kind of experience in the hospital when they're able to view people and see them as opposed to just hearing, hearing the voice. But, um, you know, it's one of the additional cruelties of this disease is that it's really forced people to, to suffer alone. Um, and it's something that we need to, to be mindful of going forward. Mm -hmm. I read a report from the CDC yesterday that, that put out that healthcare workers who have coronavirus is now reached 9,000. And mm. I just want to ask you about that. This is a unique situation for healthcare workers. You're, you frequently will work with, uh, you know, with patients, serve patients who will, who will die. But this is different knowing that there's a real chance you're going to get this. So how are you mentally preparing yourself for this, you and your colleagues every day? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's again, it's, it's a unique time. And a lot of people are concerned uh, about their level of exposure and the risk that comes with it. We've had clinicians across the city who have fallen ill. Um, you know, at least one has passed away. Um, and so it's a really challenging time. Um, like I said, we're fortunate that we have uh, the, the PPE that we need. Um, we're taking all available precautions that we can, but there's no doubt that there's some level of risk. Um, and, you know, I'm just blown away by the level of professionalism of our nurses and our doctors and respiratory therapists and PAs um, that get up and go to work 
um, and assume that risk uh, to care for their patients. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that you write in the most recent article, uh, this is just a really powerful quote. It sometimes feel as though we're fighting dual epidemics, the coronavirus and loneliness. Do you have a specific exchange either with a colleague or with a patient that, that really drives that home for you? Yeah, you know, um, a lot of my patients become really tearful when I tell them that they're, you know, well enough to leave the hospital. They, um, they're happy that their breathing has improved, that they're not requiring oxygen, they can go home, but they're also just so happy that their isolation has ended. You know, I've had patients, more than one patient, tell me that I'm releasing them from Corona jail, and it feels like a jail to some people. They're, they're in there alone, they can't leave, um, they're not getting visitors. Um, and so uh, it's something that every day people struggle with in the hospital. And my hope is that, you know, we're going to get through this and we can go back to a, a place where families and friends can come in and visit. But right now it can be a really isolating experience for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I've talked with some first responders to disasters in the past, people who've worked with earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, any of those situations, they've been able to describe a light at the end of the tunnel. They understand that their work will be done at a certain time. But in this crisis, have you been able to measure time yet? Do you have an idea of when this will end for you? You know, I don't think anyone really knows exactly how long this is going to last, um, whether it's going to subside and then come back, uh, you know, again and again. I don't think we have answers to those questions yet. Uh, What we have started to see, at least in New York, is that the curve is starting to flatten. The the number of new hospitalizations every day, the number of new deaths um, is leveling off or even decreasing in some cases. And so in that sense, there's kind of this budding optimism, this hope that's starting to emerge. Um, But you're absolutely right. It's not um, it's not a one-day disaster. It's not a week long. Um, it's it's going to be on the order of months, and that makes it really challenging for people. And it's all the more important that that we have the support that we need, and that we recognize that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. The the work and sacrifice that healthcare professionals like yourself are making is evident. Um, those frontline people, you're doing everything that you can, but from a macro level. Uh, there have been mistakes. They've been documented already. I'm sure that as reports come out after we have this behind us, those uh, additional mistakes will be uh, highlighted as well. But what are the questions our healthcare professionals, our political leaders need to be asking, need to be answering so that we're better better prepared for this the next time around? Yeah, um, you know, I think there's a number of things that that people, um, I think, are have been asking for and think that are the right policy um, prescriptions at this point. I think, you know, the the kind of uh, absence of ready readily available testing early on um, it has been a real issue, and I think it's still an issue in many places. But um, I think. If there's one thing that I would say that we need to, to be able to do and we need to be able to do quickly and widely, it's make sure that people have tests available so we know that who has the disease, who doesn't, who's been exposed. It might allow for contact tracing so that we could um, 
get ahead of this epidemic in a way that we haven't been able to yet. Um, I think early on, there was a lot of issues around PPE, personal protective uh, equipment for um, healthcare workers on the front lines. I've seen that many reports suggest that things are getting better. Certainly our hospital uh, has been in a good place um, uh, kind of throughout, fortunately, but a lot of hospitals have not been. And so I think um, the PPE shortage has been really problematic in some cases. Uh, and then I think we need to be more forward looking around hospital capacity and ICU capacity. And, you know, if we see, if we know that there's going to be a surge in cases, um, we need to make sure that we have the personnel, we have to um, staff ventilators, we have to have enough ventilators, and we have to create the additional space to care for patients who are critically ill. And so I think testing, I think PPE, and then I think uh, issues around healthcare capacity are the three kind of policy areas that I think we need to focus on. Well, Drew, as, as we've seen this unfold in New York and other hotspots around the U.S. and the globe, uh, our hearts really go out to, to you and all those healthcare workers on the front line, as well as those patients that you're caring for. So I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, great to be with you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Inthrive for sponsoring this week's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Dhruv Kular. To check out his most recent work, visit dhruvkular.com. Keep an eye out for more in this series as we talk with other healthcare professionals guiding their practices through these difficult times. To keep up with the latest, be sure to visit mgma.com slash COVID. You can also connect with fellow members and healthcare peers at community.mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com membership. Thanks.